In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 30, the Credit Mobilier scandal, a Gilded Age fraud and corruption caper so blatant it saw legislators openly bribing each other on the House floor. In the 1860s, President Abraham Lincoln desperately wanted a railway connecting the East Coast with California. A coast-to-coast -coast railway would open up new worlds of possibility for Americans. It would finally end the age of difficult, dangerous covered wagon migration. Not to mention the economic benefits. Raw materials like lumber and coal would be easily shippable nationwide. Cities along the path would become meccas for commerce and tourism. The only problem was nobody wanted to build that magical railway. It was too risky for private sector investors. The financial outlay required was enormous. The feats of engineering necessary to lay railroad tracks across the Rocky Mountains were unprecedented. Massachusetts Congressman Oakes Ames promised President Lincoln he'd find a way to get the Great Railroad built. But there was no ethical way to do it. To keep his promise, Ames was going to have to con Congress from the inside. In the process, he'd bankrupt some of the world's richest men, bring the Union Pacific Railroad to its knees, destroy his own political career, and play a role in bringing on America's first Great Depression. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. On July 1st, 1862, the United States Congress started a company. It was the first time the federal government had used this power in 46 years. Even in the 19th century, it was seen as a highly unusual action. But these were no ordinary circumstances, and the Union Pacific Railroad was to be no ordinary business. President Abraham Lincoln believed that a transcontinental railroad was critical to America's future. When the Civil War finally ended, the country would be desperately in need of reconciliation and economic stimulus. Coast-to-coast -coast travel would accomplish both purposes. The Central Pacific Railroad agreed to build the section that traveled from the California coast inward, but no one wanted to build the section that traveled across the Rocky Mountains to Utah. By signing the Pacific Railway Act of 1862, Lincoln authorized the creation of a brand new corporation for that purpose. The law also appointed 163 men chosen by Congress as its directors. Put yourself in the shoes of one of those 163 men. One day, you're minding your own business, maybe working as an engineer. The next day, you're summoned by the federal government to attend a board meeting of a new railroad company. 
You didn't ask for this job. You have no idea how to build a transcontinental railroad. Yet the president himself now expects you to play a role in figuring this all out. Oh, and by the way, maybe you'll make some money once the company is up and running. But for now, you've been volunteered. As you can imagine, many of the 163 didn't exactly feel honored. More than half of the appointed directors skipped the first board meeting held in September of 1862. Not an auspicious start for the Union Pacific. Those who were in attendance didn't show much enthusiasm for the project either. They all agreed that there simply wasn't enough financing available to make the railroad a reality. The government was willing to lend the Union Pacific money, but only in the form of 30-year bonds. Basically, the railroad company would be granted federal lands, which would be mortgaged in exchange for government bonds. The problem was, at the time, companies often sold stock in basically the same way, by mortgaging their assets for more liquid funds. And nobody wanted to finance a second mortgage on land that was already mortgaged to the government. Beyond that, the railroad was a risky proposition for investors. No one was sure it would ever turn a profit. And if the project failed, the shareholders would all be liable for the company's debts. The long and short of it is, private investors wouldn't buy shares in UP, and they needed that private cash. Government bonds alone wouldn't be enough. So the project stalled. For a long time, Mormon leader Brigham Young was the company's only stockholder who'd paid in full. He owned five shares. A year after the first board meeting, UP had raised only about 10% of the capital they needed. But there was at least one other man unwilling to give up on UP: Midwestern Railroad investor Thomas Durant. Once a physician by trade, Durant had stopped practicing medicine to focus on his investments. Still, people called him Doc Durant. His flamboyant personality and unabashed greed won him as many enemies as friends. Now he was one of the vanishingly few people still trying his hardest to peddle Union Pacific stock. In no other circumstances would Durant and Lincoln have been allies. Durant was prone to ruthlessness and cheating. He'd formerly smuggled contraband cotton north from the Confederate States. Honest Abe's government prosecuted such crimes. For the sake of the railroad, though, Lincoln and Durant put their differences aside. In 1863, Doc Durant was named vice president of the Union Pacific, and that fall, work finally began on the railroad. Sort of. A groundbreaking ceremony was held in Omaha. Durant traveled around Nebraska, asking various towns for free land for train depots. Surveyors were hired and fired. But the railroad still didn't have enough money to make meaningful progress. By early 1864, Durant's excuses for the lack of progress were wearing thin. He was in real danger of losing his VP job. He needed a new approach to fundraising and fast. That's when he turned to shipping magnate George Francis Train. The appropriately named Train was one of the few people besides Durant who still had an interest in making UP a success. He bought land in Omaha in anticipation of the railroad driving up its value, and as it happened, he had an idea for attracting private investment, not to mention lining his own pockets. All they had to do, Train explained, 
was have people buy into the construction of the railroad rather than the railroad itself. Union Pacific was considered the longest of long-shot investments, but the process of building the railroad was sure to be profitable for whatever construction company did the job. So why not just create and sell shares in the construction company? The dummy construction company would be the only bidder for the federal contract to build the railroad, so they were guaranteed to turn a profit. They could then sell shares in the dummy company at close to zero risk for investors. That money would be funneled through the dummy company and back to UP. Some of it would actually be used to pay for the railroad. And the rest would go right into their own pockets. At the time, corporations had to be chartered by a vote of their state legislatures. Since Durant and Train intended to hide the true ownership of the company, buying an existing inactive corporation was smarter than starting a new one. In March of 1864, Train found the perfect one, the Pennsylvania Fiscal Company. He quickly renamed it the Credit Mobilier of America to take advantage of the excellent reputation of a French bank with the same name. As for Doc Durant, he still had money on his mind. Union Pacific would need more than he could raise, even with the dummy corporation in play. He had to get Abe Lincoln to loosen the federal purse strings. In exchange for increased funding, President Lincoln had only one request. Hurry it up so when I retire from running this country, I can take a trip over it. Lincoln even encouraged Durant to increase the amount he requested for the railroad. He wanted to make sure the federal money was sufficient to get the thing built. Durant took the president's advice and upped his ask. When Lincoln signed the Second Pacific Railroad Act on July 2, 1864, it was one of the biggest government subsidies of all time. With such a big investment, though, Lincoln was wary of leaving it in the hands of Durant. He had his doubts about the man's leadership abilities. Just months after the second act was passed, Lincoln asked Massachusetts Congressman Oakes Ames to step in. Ames was a successful entrepreneur whose company sold shovels to California gold rush miners. His familiarity with both coasts made him the ideal candidate to help Union Pacific get across the finish line. In early 1865, with the railroad still stalled, President Lincoln summoned the congressman and told him, Ames, you take hold of this. The road must be built, and you are the man to do it. By building the Union Pacific, you will be the remembered man of your generation. Ames promised that he would do everything in his power to drive the railroad project forward. A few short weeks later, on April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was shot and killed by John Wilkes Booth. The shocking assassination sent the nation into a period of mourning. Even Confederate Commander Robert E. Lee, who had surrendered just five days before, was upset by Lincoln's death. As for Oakes Ames, in the wake of Lincoln's death, he resolved to build the railroad in his president's memory, whatever it took. And it would take everything. Up next, Ames sells his soul and a lot of stock. Now back to the story. In April of 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. 
He had hoped to travel over the transcontinental railroad after retiring from politics, but Honest Abe didn't even live to see the final route laid out. Congressman Oakes Ames had promised the late president that the railroad would be built come hell or high water. Now, he had to figure out how to keep his word. First things first, befriending Doc Durant and George Francis Train, who had begun selling shares in their dummy construction company, the Credit Mobilier of America. All Ames had to do to get in their good graces was open his pockets. Oakes Ames became an early investor in Credit Mobilier. He brought his brother and business partner, Oliver Ames, on board as well. Then, Congressman Ames began pitching other members of Congress. He called Credit Mobilier a diamond mine. It couldn't possibly fail to make a profit. Two congressmen bought 500 shares each, and Iowa Senator James Grimes took 250. But mostly, the Ames brothers bought in themselves to the tune of over 4,000 shares and sold to their fellow Boston businessmen. Pretty soon, Oakes Ames, his brother, and their Boston allies together held more than half of Credit Mobilier's stock. Ames knew from the beginning that Durant and Train owned Credit Mobilier and were hiding that fact from some of their investors. But it's possible that, at least for a while, he didn't realize there was more to the scam than that. To ensure that Credit Mobilier wasn't just profitable, but astronomically so, they planned to massively overcharge Union Pacific for construction. Of course, since the same people were in charge of both companies, nobody would be able to hold Credit Mobilier accountable for its inflated fees. Remember, the railroad was funded by enormous government subsidies. So Durant, Train, and their investors would be sticking taxpayers with the bill for all those extra-large construction invoices. The modern term for this scam is self-dealing, and today, in most cases, it's illegal. But at the time, it was perfectly legal. Ames might not have even considered it unethical. After all, they were finally getting the railroad bill. Credit Mobilier subcontracted the actual construction work out to Jack Casement and his brother Dan. Jack was an efficient man with a sterling record from his service in the Union military. Whatever he knew about the scam, which probably wasn't much, he didn't let it hold him back from laying down the rails. The end of the Civil War had freed up thousands of fit young men to take jobs as track layers. The camaraderie of railroad crews came as a welcome change for men traumatized by the war. Recruiting labor was easy. What wasn't so easy was feeding and housing them on the open frontier. To do that, Jack Caseman came up with an innovation never to be repeated. He called it the City on Wheels, but many of the workers nicknamed it Hell on Wheels. Put simply, it was a collection of rail cars that housed, moved, and fed 1,500 to 2,000 men at a time, plus 2,000 to 3,000 horses and mules. Pushed by locomotives, the city moved to the end of the tracks each night. In the morning, the men got out and started laying new tracks ahead of the trains. It moved slowly but steadily west from the starting point in Omaha, carrying with it a mind-boggling quantity of supplies. The men consumed three cows a day, along with seven barrels of flour, two chests of tea, and 25 bushels of potatoes. 
Pacement and his men intended to get the railroad finished as quickly and skillfully as possible. But Durant had other priorities. He bluntly told other members of the Union Pacific Board that his intention was, quote, to grab a wad from the construction fees and get out. Almost as soon as construction started, it got behind schedule. Union Pacific was legally obliged to build 100 miles of track by June of 1866. By the end of 1865, they'd only built 40. This was partially because Durant and Train were siphoning so much money from the project, they didn't have enough left over to actually build the railroad. They were using cheap, inferior materials, and in some cases, failing to pay their own surveyors and subcontractors. Ames was willing to go along with self-dealing, and even with inflated invoices. Even today, those practices are so widespread, they're almost expected in government contracting. But what Ames couldn't overlook was that Durant didn't care about Lincoln's beloved railroad. That was what pushed him to act. In November of 1866, Oakes Ames and his brother Oliver executed a coup. Thomas Durant, as vice president, had been running Union Pacific from the beginning. But the company's actual president on paper was General John Dix, who was semi-permanently on leave. At the November board meeting, the Ames brothers called a vote to appoint a new temporary president in Dix's stead. The vote was 13 to 1 in favor of Oliver Ames over Thomas Durant. A second vote expelled Durant from the executive board entirely. Durant knew some of the board didn't like his style or his habit of pocketing a disproportionate share of the profits. Still, the coup shocked him so badly that Train advised him he was at risk of a stress-induced stroke. This could have been a turning point for Union Pacific. The Ames brothers cut back on Credit Mobilier's huge invoices and started laying more tracks. They even opened new consumer rail routes. If they continued in that vein, there might never have been a Credit Mobilier scandal. Nature had other plans. After Oliver Ames took over as president, a bitterly cold winter halted progress. Then, a series of floods and fires caused more delays. People whispered that if Durant was still in charge, he'd have found a way to work around the disastrous weather. Even Durant himself started sabotaging Ames. He picked loud public fights in front of other board members. He even sued the railroad and got an injunction preventing Credit Mobilier from assigning new contracts to workers and vendors. Their biggest disagreement was over the potential of the railroad. Oliver Ames, influenced by his congressman brother, was a true believer in Lincoln's vision. He believed that the railroad could become profitable. Durant, on the other hand, maintained that Credit Mobilier was the only part of the railroad that would ever make money. Instead of offering investors slow-growing railroad profits, he reeled them in with a quick windfall from construction fees. No capitalist worth their salt chooses gradual but sustainable profit over a lot of money right now. And with Durant's injunction still delaying construction, the Ames brothers saw the writing on the wall. It was time for a ceasefire. Oliver Ames reappointed Thomas Durant to the executive board of the Union Pacific Railroad. In exchange, Durant lifted his injunction. 
and he saw to it that the very next subcontract awarded by Credit Mobilier went to none other than Congressman Oakes Ames. Yep, a peace offering, or a fat bribe, depending on how you want to look at it. Before November of 1867, Ames had been promoting Credit Mobilier heavily, but he was merely an investor with a genuine interest in completing the railroad. Now, he'd pocketed some of the cash that he, as a congressman, had vowed to give Union Pacific. He only got more corrupt from there. In December, Credit Mobilier reported profits of over 90% for the year and paid a dividend to investors with at least 10 shares. They got a 76% profit on their initial investment. Suddenly, every elected official on Capitol Hill was clamoring for a piece of the pie. They practically broke down the door of Congressman Ames's office to get a hold of Credit Mobilier shares. Ames later said of these would-be investors, there were so many, I cannot recollect all the names. Here are just a few of the people who ultimately did get Credit Mobilier shares. Congressman and future president James Garfield, Speaker of the House and future vice president Schuyler Colfax, Senator and future vice president Henry Wilson, and at least nine other members of the House and Senate. All but one were Republicans like Ames. A single Democrat, James Brooks, bought shares, though under his son's name. Of course, we don't know if other Democrats were interested or if Ames was refusing to sell to the opposing party. He wasn't always selling either. If a representative Ames wanted to influence got cold feet, Ames would simply give them the stocks for free and tell them to repay him when the next year's dividends came. He even handed out Credit Mobilier stock certificates like candy on the House floor. Of course, there were expectations tied to those gifts. The people who received shares all happened to be on committees that voted on railroad-related bills. They were expected to vote however the railroad preferred. Ames was still determined to get Honest Abe's great railroad built. Only now he'd given up on doing it the right way. He was openly bribing his colleagues and personally siphoning government funds away from the railroad. It's hard to imagine how the Massachusetts congressman thought he wouldn't get caught. Maybe he just believed that everyone wanted the railroad completed so badly, they'd forgive anything he did in pursuit of that goal. He was wrong. That's up next. Now, back to the story. In 1867, as the Transcontinental Railroad surged forward, Massachusetts Congressman Oakes Ames bribed his friends in the House and Senate with Credit Mobilier shares. It was a valuable gift, with the company paying 76% dividends and reporting millions of dollars in profits. In exchange, he expected unconditional support for anything Union Pacific wanted. Of course, UP's Vice President, Thomas Durant, had no intention of ever making a successful railroad. Durant just wanted to take the government for every dollar he could and leave a completed but bankrupt railroad for the feds to bail out. As construction invoices piled up, Durant's scam became a threat to the national economy. The amount of money involved boggles the mind. By the time the scam was over, Credit Mobilier had been paid over $94 million by the federal government. 
That's almost $1.7 billion in today's money. Of that money, only about $51 million went to actual construction costs. That left Credit Mobilier banking a net profit of over $43 million, or more than $750 million today. Keep in mind, this all took place in the Reconstruction era. Think what all that federal money could have accomplished if it went to rebuilding the war-torn nation rather than enriching a few robber barons. But into the pockets of the Credit Mobilier investors it went. And for a while, that seemed like the end of the story. In 1868, Ulysses S. Grant was elected president. His vice president, Schuyler Colfax, brought his Credit Mobilier shares with him to his new office. In January of 1869, one young journalist tried to break the story of the scheme. Charles Francis Adams Jr. wrote that there was as much as $180 million unaccounted for in Credit Mobilier's account books. Nobody cared. There was only one railroad story that mattered in 1869, and that was the race to finish the Transcontinental Railroad. While Union Pacific was crossing the West, laying down tracks over the Rocky Mountains, the Central Pacific Railroad was hard at work on their section, starting in California and stretching inland to Utah. Americans were transfixed, waiting for the moment when the two rails would finally meet. The railroads, both receiving government subsidies paid by the mile, competed to lay the most tracks before their paths crossed. Against all odds, and despite its own management's greed, Union Pacific was doing its part. That was thanks mostly to Jack Casement. He and his Hell on Wheels crew managed to cross the Rocky Mountains and push into Utah. Finally, on May 10, 1869, the two railroads met at last. The leaders of the Central Pacific and Union Pacific Railroads celebrated with a massive ceremony. It was as much a party for American unity as it was for the railroads. Former Confederates stood in the crowd alongside Union soldiers. There were parades as far away as Sacramento and San Francisco. As the ceremony wound down, Oakes Ames had not a care in the world. He'd kept his promise to Abraham Lincoln. The railroad was complete. At least for one day, America felt united. Better yet, He'd made a killing on his Credit Mobilier stock, and he hadn't gotten in any trouble for it. A scammer's dream. Union Pacific had transferred nearly every cent it took in to Credit Mobilier. Poor Brigham Young, the first man to buy shares in the railroad itself, got nothing in return for his investment. UP was on the verge of bankruptcy. With the project completed, Credit Mobilier dissolved. All the parties involved went on their merry way, and the nation enjoyed its new railroad. Union Pacific slowly began to recover from the financial damage, passing on the massive costs of construction to passengers in the form of high ticket prices. Effectively, consumers subsidized the profits pocketed by UP's shady board. Meanwhile, Oaks Ames had tied up every loose end, except for one. And that one was an investor named Henry S. McComb. In the final divvying up of the Credit Mobilier profits, McComb felt he'd been shortchanged. He brought his grievance to Congressman Ames and was disappointed in his response. 
disappointed enough to take the now-dissolved Credit Mobilier Corporation to court. The lawsuit dragged on for years. Macomb eventually realized he didn't have much of a chance of winning. So in 1872, he tried another tactic. He sent the New York Sun some of the documents he'd submitted as evidence, specifically a list of elected officials to whom Ames offered Credit Mobilier stock. On September 4, 1872, the following headline ran on the front page of The Sun. The King of Frauds, How Credit Mobilier Bought Its Way Through Congress, Colossal Bribery. Congressmen who have robbed the people and who now support the national robber. How some men get fortunes. The article had an ulterior motive. President Grant was now running for re-election, and it didn't look great that his vice president, Schuyler Colfax, was implicated in the scandal. Grant had already replaced Colfax with a new running mate, Henry Wilson, before the scandal broke. And oops, Henry Wilson also appeared on Ames's bribery list. The story blew up immediately. Everyone on the list of names was pursued day and night by reporters. Ames only dug himself in deeper. He told one reporter that he could, quote, see no reason why a member of Congress should not own Credit Mobilier stock. That flippin' comment sparked national outrage. Congress was forced to act, though even the congressmen who weren't involved in the scandal didn't want to investigate it. This was an especially corrupt era in politics. Most elected officials had a few skeletons in their closets. The last thing anyone wanted was a Congress-wide mudslinging match. Reluctantly, Speaker Blaine himself implicated in the scandal asked Congress to appoint a committee to investigate. The House proceeded to hold a full six months of hearings, conveniently continuing through the presidential election so as not to announce any findings before Grant was re-elected. Throughout the half year of hearings, the public remained glued to every dirty detail. One big talking point was a letter uncovered by the press, in which Congressman Ames announced his intention to put Credit Mobilier stock, quote, where it will do the most good. In other words, he would give shares to the officials whose votes were most useful. It was a gentlemanly way to say, I'm giving out bribes. The public was totally convinced Oakes Ames was corrupt. He would have to face the consequences. But as for the other 30 or so Republicans implicated by the investigation, the Republican-led House committee had no intention of exposing them all. The House committee decided to make examples of just two men, Oakes Ames and the sole Democrat on the list of names leaked to the Sun, James Brooks. Brooks' punishment was seen as a political move intended to make the Credit Mobilier scandal look more like a bipartisan affair. On February 27, 1873, the House voted to formally censure Oakes Ames for seeking to procure congressional attention to the affairs of a corporation in which he was interested. The same resolution censured Brooks for attempted bribery. Censure is Congress speak for public recorded disapproval. It's not a material punishment, but in the Gilded Age when men still fought duels over rumors and insults, reputation was everything. 
To be censured by Congress was to be completely ostracized from polite society. An effort to remove Ames from the House of Representatives failed, but he was a broken man. The long scandal and formal censure had left him without the courage or the reputation to continue his work as a legislator. He returned home to Massachusetts in disgrace. James Brooks remained in Washington, D.C., but not for long. On March 8th, a widely circulated cartoon in Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper depicted Uncle Sam ordering the censured congressman to die by ritual suicide. Less than two months later, on April 30th, James Brooks died at the age of 62. On May 8th, Oakes Ames died of a stroke as well. His grieving heirs blamed the Credit Mobilier scandal for his death. As for the others implicated, none faced any serious consequences. Grant won re-election, and Henry Wilson became vice president. James Garfield, who was also involved, was elected president himself in 1880. However, after the scandal, the American people's trust in both Congress and the American financial system took a nosedive. Most historians agree that the Credit Mobilier scandal played a significant role in the Panic of 1873, a massive stock market crash that ushered in America's first Great Depression. As usual, when politicians take bribes, the American people are the ones to pay. But at least the United States got a pretty decent railroad out of the bargain. At least there's that. In fact, the Union Pacific is still operating today as a freight line. And if you'd like to drive the historic transcontinental railroad route in your own vehicle, I-80 follows it almost exactly. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with scandal number 29, the twisted tale of Democratic governor, corruption magnate, and recent presidential pardon recipient, Rod Blagojevich. For more information on the Credit Mobilier scandal, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Nothing Like It in the World, The Men Who Built the Transcontinental Railroad by Stephen E. Ambrose, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>